have just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iran collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Terrence Siegel, the podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the last seven days and how we got here. On today's episode, we must take powerful measures to lawfully prevent, stop, and punish them. Xi Jinping is burning Hong Kong. And China will burn with us. But first, here's what happened in the world this week. Minneapolis has been in a fiery storm of protests this week in response to the death of George Floyd. Floyd was an African-American who was unarmed and in police custody when an officer pinned him to the ground and held him there with his knee for several minutes, even though he said he couldn't breathe. By the time paramedics arrived on the scene, Floyd was motionless. This was all filmed by a bystander, and the footage spread rapidly on social media on Tuesday. Later that day, huge protests erupted in Minneapolis, with a mob of protesters setting the Minneapolis police station on fire. Protests have also spread across to eight other cities across the U.S., including New York, Los Angeles, and Phoenix. President Trump tweeted a condemnation of the protesters, calling them thugs that were dishonoring George Floyd's memory. Finishing the tweet with, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. In response to this, Twitter added its first warning label to a presidential tweet, saying it violated their rules because it glorified violence. Users now can't see the tweet without first seeing a disclaimer message, and they're banned from liking or replying to it. Au cours de cette phase 2, et je veux insister sur cet élément qui est important, la liberté, enfin... In France, cafes and restaurants will finally reopen on June 2nd. Some kind of social distancing will still be enforced, though, with tables limited to 10 diners max and each group separated by at least a meter. In Paris, only outdoor seating will be allowed, at least for now. Elsewhere, though, the coronavirus news isn't nearly as promising. In South Korea, uh, after seeing its biggest spike in cases on Thursday in 50 days, the government decided to close schools again. The U.S. passed a grim marker of 100,000 deaths, and Brazil is slowly edging towards becoming the world's next COVID-19 hotspot. Because they have failed to make the requested and greatly needed reforms, we will be today terminating our relationship with the World Health Organization and redirecting those funds to other worldwide and deserving urgent global public health needs. On Friday, President Trump announced that the U.S. would be withdrawing from the World Health Organization. The U.S. is the organization's biggest contributor, so a move like this would really weaken it. 
This comes after Trump announced in April that the U.S. would be temporarily freezing its contributions pending an internal investigation into WHO's management of the international response to COVID-19. The investigation was opened a couple of weeks ago, but Trump withdrew from WHO without waiting for its findings. Congressional Democrats argue, though, that it would be illegal for Trump to withdraw the U.S. without congressional approval, and they pledged to fight this, with Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi calling Trump's announcement an extraordinary act of senselessness. And with that, it's time for this week's Deep Dive. It's the saddest state in Hong Kong history. I just want to say to the international community that this is the end of Hong Kong. This is the end of one country, two system. Make no mistake about it. I foresee that the international status of Hong Kong as a city, the international city, will be gone very soon. Those are the voices of two lawmakers in Hong Kong. On Thursday, China's National People's Congress, the country's legislature, passed a bill that really stunned the international community. Chinese top leaders under the new laws, China will have the power to quash dissent in Hong Kong. Officially, the bill criminalizes conducts that harm national security, it allows China's national intelligence agencies to set up offices right in Hong Kong, and it can be placed right into Hong Kong's mini-constitution, called the Basic Law, bypassing Hong Kong lawmakers. It passed in Beijing 2,878 to 1. The move immediately sparked outrage and protests in Hong Kong. But when the new law takes effect, which it could do as early as September, who knows if these protests will even be possible? That is, without the activists risking decades in prison for treason. And of course, from Beijing's perspective, that's exactly the point. This may seem a bit like deja vu, a controversial law about the relationship between China and Hong Kong, outrage followed by mass protests. It might seem like an age ago now, but of course, the same series of events happened a year ago. But the move last week marks a new and unprecedented step in Beijing flashing its power over the semi-autonomous city. It sort of rules, sort of doesn't rule. On the other hand, Hong Kong and Beijing have been engaged in this tense and awkward dance for years, pitting authoritarianism against democracy in a fiery battle that's seen millions of protesters, a human chain of pro-democracy lawmakers, tear gas, Molotov cocktails, and death. To understand how we got here, how Hong Kong became a battleground for democracy versus communism, we have to go back quite a ways. You might not be aware that all the tensions erupting right now, the weird sort of self-governing state that Hong Kong is in, can be traced back to two things. Tea and opium.
In the early 1800s, the British had a real taste for Chinese tea, importing loads of it for their tea-loving public. But China was not a fan of British tea. In fact, they didn't want anything that the British produced. The Qing dynasty insisted that the British pay for their tea-drinking habit in gold and silver, where the British under Queen Victoria wanted to trade for it. Victoria's government decided to force the Chinese to trade for tea with opium. Now, to the British, opium was a nice homeopathic medicine, but to the Chinese, it was a dangerous narcotic that was plunging the country into an opioid epidemic. They did not want any of this British drug in their country. And so in 1839, Chinese officials burned 20,000 bales of opium in protest. This, understandably, infuriated the British, who declared war, and the first of the opium wars began. You might be wondering what all this has to do with Hong Kong. Well, Hong Kong had been a part of China for 2,000 years before the Opium Wars kicked off and changed everything. During the wars, the British occupied the strategic port city and used Hong Kong as a military base. When the wars ended, the peace treaty officially gave Hong Kong to the British. Or rather, they leased it to them. The British pushed for all-out ownership. But the Qing dynasty managed to get them to compromise on a 99-year lease. Fast forward to 1997, the lease This is the sound of the Hong Kong handover ceremony. The British flag is ever so slowly lowered. And the Chinese flag is triumphantly raised. Ten minutes, Hong Kong went from a British colony to a Chinese one. It has been the greatest honor and privilege of my life to share your home for five years and to have some responsibility for your future. Now, Hong Kong people are to run Hong Kong. That is the promise and that is the unshakable destiny. Unprecedented though this moment in history may be, we have the utmost confidence in the abilities and resilience of the Hong Kong people. Britain learnt long ago that Hong Kong people know best what is good for Hong Kong. Despite these speeches by the departing British occupiers, this wasn't exactly the agreement reached with China. Hong Kong would not become its own state, deciding its own future. It would become a part of China, but under a strange paradigm that they called one country, two systems. The new Hong Kong Special Administrative Region would be given a mini constitution of basic laws and a semi-independent government of three branches. 
so Hong Kong would be allowed to govern itself, though under the ever-watchful eye of Beijing, and enjoy freedoms not seen in mainland China. But really importantly in all this, this halfway system where Hong Kong was kind of self-governing would only last for 50 years. In 2047, the One Country, Two Systems Agreement would expire, and Hong Kong would officially be a part of China. The anxiety and uncertainty of living in a temporary, semi-autonomous state straddling the gulf between democracy and authoritarianism has created huge tensions in the port city, with occasional eruptions of protest. It's important to keep in mind why protest is so important to Hong Kongers. The chief executive of Hong Kong is elected by a 1,200-member elite group of people. The people who belong to the group are in turn elected by other Hong Kongers, but that only adds up to a total of 6% of the constituency. So really, one of the only ways that Hong Kongers can express their political beliefs is through protest. And they've used this freedom whenever necessary to fight back against China encroachment. The first major time was 2003, just five years after the handover. Now, this story is going to sound extremely familiar because the protests that erupted in 2003, which swelled to a crowd of half a million, making it the biggest protest against the Hong Kong government in its history, were sparked by the proposed implementation of a security bill. Just like the one passed earlier this week, the bill focused on sedition, secession, and treason, aiming to increase the prison sentence for those offenses. The main difference was that back then it was the Hong Kong government, led by Tong Chiu'a, who was effectively appointed by Beijing after the 1997 handover. The bill from last week was passed by China's legislature. Another major difference is that the 2003 bill didn't pass. The Hong Kong government bound to pressure by the hundreds of thousands of peaceful demonstrators, plus the condemnations by the US and Europe. Yesterday, the Executive Council, very early this morning, the Executive Council decided to defer the resumption of second reading of the Basic Law 23. And this is really in response, further response, to the views and concerns expressed by the people. That deferment turned into an outright scrapping of the bill, with Chung just saying they'd have to deal with these security issues sometime in the coming years. One of the ironies here, though, is that the security laws they tried to pass in 2003, which would make things like treason a criminal offense with a long prison sentence, are actually less severe than the British colonial regulations they would have been replacing. But while acts of treason and sedition would have come with a much harsher penalty under British law, the fact is those laws were hardly ever invoked in the country's 150-year occupation. Now under the wing of Chinese rule, the fear for Hong Kongers was that these laws would be invoked a lot more liberally and arbitrarily. And that's the same fear gripping them today. But as I said, back in 2003, the bill failed. The protest was won. And for the next decade, there was relative calm. And then came the biggest challenge so far to the one country, two systems concept. In September 2014, the central government in Beijing tried to implement some election reform in Hong Kong. At first glance, their proposal seemed very democratic. 
They offered to scrap the current system, wherein the 1,200-member elite body elects Hong Kong's leader and expands suffrage to all Hong Kong citizens. The catch, though, was that the three candidates for chief executive would be handpicked by China. So basically, under the guise of offering Hong Kong more democracy, China was actually attempting to tighten its control even further. This sparked tens of thousands of protesters to demonstrate in front of government headquarters in Hong Kong. The protesters would go on to stage sit-ins around the city, even flooding into intersections, at times causing miles of backed-up traffic. This went on for three months. We won't go home! We won't! Not only me, all of us here won't go home until we are victory at last. The protesters demanded this sham universal suffrage proposal be withdrawn and for all Hong Kongers to be given the right to elect their leader without Beijing pre-screening the candidates. The three-month-long demonstration became known as the Umbrella Movement, since protesters would use umbrellas to protect against police pepper spray. Even though the movement got a lot of international media attention, it didn't actually bring about any election reform. Hong Kong's legislature ultimately rejected the reform proposal from the central government, so Beijing wouldn't be able to pre-select candidates, and there wouldn't be universal suffrage. Essentially, no change. Nothing gained, nothing lost. And since it's still the 1,200-member body that elects the leader, not the whole of Hong Kong, it's always turned out that the candidate China prefers wins. So it doesn't really matter that China can't actually select the candidates for Hong Kong chief executive. They still get a pro-Beijing leader in the end. But the biggest successful intervention for Beijing would come two years later. And it was a bit of a bizarre controversy. Basically, two newly elected lawmakers in Hong Kong decided to improvise on some of the wording of their swearing-in oath. The oath requires lawmakers to swear allegiance to Beijing. Technically, they have to say that they swear allegiance to the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region of the People's Republic of China. The pro-democracy lawmakers skipped over that part and brandished a flag that said Hong Kong is not China. And then, to finish the matter, shouted a derogatory name for China. Of the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region of the People's Republic of China. This caused an uproar in the chamber and set off a crazy chain of events. First, their oaths were rejected, which meant they wouldn't be able to take a seat in parliament. Then, the legislature's president invited them back a week later to retake their oaths. But a group of pro-Beijing lawmakers staged a walkout in protest, which meant there weren't enough lawmakers in the chamber to continue, and the session had to be canceled. A week after that, the legislature's president said he changed his mind, and the two rebels wouldn't be able to come in and retake their oaths after all. So the two barged into parliament in defiance of the ban, assisted by pro-democracy lawmakers who formed a human chain in order to get them into the chamber. In all the chaos, the session was adjourned. A week later, the two lawmakers once again ran into parliament and tried to retake their oaths. Security guards tried to seize the pair and force them out, but the pro-democracy lawmakers ran in between them, surrounded the two banned lawmakers, and lay down on the floor to stop the security guards from dragging them out. Again, the session had to be canceled. 
But the most shocking part is what came next. While the ban on the two lawmakers was working its way through Hong Kong's judicial system for review, Beijing stood up and issued its own interpretation, saying that what the rebel lawmakers did disqualified them from taking their oaths and taking a seat in Hong Kong's legislature. So effectively, Beijing would decisively ban two democratically elected officials from joining parliament. This was the furthest reach China had made into Hong Kong law and politics. Pro-Beijing and pro-democracy tensions charged and festered, just waiting for the match to set the whole thing alight. And that match came in 2019. This would be the biggest wave of protests ever to hit Hong Kong with a staggering 2 million people taking to the streets at its peak. This wave of protests, like so many before it, started with some controversial moves out of Hong Kong's legislature. In April 2019, the government introduced a bill that would allow Hong Kong citizens convicted of certain crimes to be extradited to China to face the opaque, draconian legal system of the mainland. One of the most important parts of one country, two systems is the separate judicial systems of Hong Kong and China. This bill seemed to threaten that, to blur, if not erase, the line between the two regions. So hundreds of thousands took to the streets in protests, causing chaos and standstill around the city. Chief Executive Carrie Lam did retract the proposal eventually, but only after weeks of these consuming demonstrations. By then, pro-democracy activists were fed up with their government, fed up with violent clashes between protesters and riot police, and their demands had grown. They didn't just want the extradition bill withdrawn. They also wanted amnesty for arrested activists, an investigation into police brutality, for the protests to not be called riots, and for universal suffrage to finally be implemented. And so the protests went on for months, polarizing Hong Kongers. To the protesters, they felt like their civil liberties were slowly slipping away into the hands of Beijing, and this was their last chance to raise their voices in defense of democracy. And to Beijing supporters, the activists who fought back against riot police with Molotov cocktails, and even horrifyingly, set a pro-Beijing supporter on fire for terrorizing their city. The protests gradually dwindled over time, although tensions in Hong Kong remained charged. And then the global pandemic hit and mass demonstrations were banned and dangerous, and the movement came to a pause. And that brings us to this past week. We must take powerful measures to lawfully prevent, stop, and punish them. The new security bill bans treason, secession, sedition, and subversion. The chaos of the 2019 protests, sometimes building to violence and vandalism, would definitely fall under its ban. And that's, of course, the point. China saw the protests last year as completely unacceptable, and this is the response to them a law to protect national security, implemented without even consulting the Hong Kong government. On Friday, President Trump weighed into the controversy. 
China has replaced its promised formula of one country, two systems with one country, one system. We will take action to revoke Hong Kong's preferential treatment as a separate customs and travel territory from the rest of China. The United States will also take necessary steps to sanction PRC and Hong Kong officials directly or indirectly involved in eroding Hong Kong's autonomy and so and just if you take a look, smothering, absolutely smothering Hong Kong's freedom. This could mean an end to preferential treatment that Hong Kong has always received in its trading relationship with the U.S., so it could be a real blow to the little financial hub. The irony is that hurting Hong Kong economically hurts China as well, and the U.S. as well has come to that, since three regions' economies are so interwoven. But to China, exercising control over Hong Kong is a matter of national pride, although they would call it national security. Over the next few weeks, the details of the security bill will be worked out. In the meantime, Hong Kongers are left with a very unclear future. Their official absorption into China is still almost three decades away, but it seems like China is tightening its hold already. Time and again, pro-democracy activists have fought back against the pro-Beijing movement, using the only political power at their disposal, protests. With this new bill, that freedom, their only political tool really, may soon be illegal. All right, and that's our show. Tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Terrence Siegel.